Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hi, hello, and welcome back. This is the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast, and it's a new season. I'm Ali Maxwell. It's so good to be back with you for another season. If you're a returning listener, hi, welcome. You're a great person. (laughs) If you're a new listener, hello. You're about to become a better one. We're a podcast about football tactics and also the use of data in football analysis. We're going to get bigger and better this year with some new contributors. And with me today is Mark Carey, Liam Tharm, Ahmed Walid, and a debutant. Tom Harris joins us. Hi, Tom. Hi, Ali. Hello, everyone. How are we doing? Welcome to the pod. It's great to have you. We're starting the season without Michael Cox, who is far, far away doing a a marvellous job covering the Women's World Cup and has been contributing podcast-wise to the excellent and daily athletic women's football podcast. So if you're missing Michael's voice, uh, make sure you get on that. Still plenty of excitement to come in the Southern Hemisphere. But for us today, it's about the Premier League. The season is nearly upon us and we are not overthinking our preview. Uh, We don't think you're going to get this anywhere else, but we will be looking into the biggest tactical questions or challenges that faces each Premier League side ahead of the 2023-24 season. So we're going to give you a snapshot of every Premier League team through a tactical lens. This could be something to do with a new manager, a new signing, or a trend leading on from last season that we are curious about. Knowing these guys, it could be literally anything. So uh, in terms of our order of service, I've chosen a random stat or metric from last season, which has uh, given us the order. you won't be able to guess what it is, so don't bother trying. I know some of you will anyway. I know everyone in the studio is trying to do that anyway. So let's see. At the end of the pod, we will discuss. And there is a tiny clue in the intro. Did you get a good laugh for it though? Yeah. You got what you wanted? Yeah, yeah. Came a long way for that. Thank you. Let's start with Tottenham. Mark, the metric-based running order starts with Tottenham. Interesting. They've got a new manager. Highly interesting. Ange Postacoglu. Ange Postacoglu. My head's already gone to try and think of the intro of that clue, but I'll proceed by talking about, yeah, Ange Postacoglu's new style for for Spurs. He's obviously come in early um, in terms of being able to have a full pre-season to actually get to work and try and implement his style. And I think that it's fair to say that his style is far more geared towards having the ball and possession football rather than the sort of counter-attacking style that uh, Spurs have experienced with Antonio Conte and Jose Mourinho and Nuno Espirito Santo to a certain extent um, as well. And it's going to be a big shift in terms of style that um, that they're used to. So it's going to take some time and how long it will take to sort of be fully implemented is a is an interesting question, but um, it's definitely around possession um, football. And there's a, a good quote from Postacoglu from a, a couple of years ago on his style. He says, there are certain things that are non-negotiable for me. And the first one is that I want my teams to have the ball. So our attacking philosophy, our defensive philosophy, all measured around that. So I think it's fair to say the shackles are off uh, a little bit more um, for for the players, but for the fans as well, to be able to actually watch 
arguably more entertaining football. Similarly, out of possession being far more kind of front foot rather than kind of bunkering in and, and counter-attacking. But I think as much as anything, it's going to be more geared towards how they adapt in their back line, really, of having a, a centre-back partnership rather than a, a back three and having the personnel to be able to do that as well because it doesn't look at the moment like they necessarily do. I think Ben Davis played at left centre-back in a centre-back pairing in, in one of the games in pre-season, which is just not necessarily his... His key strength, Eric Dyer is sticking around the squad, but I don't think he's going to necessarily be a starter. So I think it's interesting from a centre-back pairing perspective, but also how the a lot of their personnel who were wing-backs last season aren't necessarily built to, to be the sort of style of a, a full-back. And Destiny Adogi on the, the left and Pedro Porro on the, the right are very much pacey, forward-thinking uh, wing-backs and how much they'd sort of adapt to to that style. And we've already seen this in both uh, preseason games against West Ham United and Singapore's Lion City Sailors, that we've seen Emerson, uh, even Reguillon, Duogi and Pedro Porro both inverting and pretty comfortable. And if you saw like their fifth goal against Lion City, Hoiberg was playing as a deep number six in the second half, finding Emerson like inside, who was inverting behind uh, Leon City's midfield. And then Emerson played the ball to skip, but it found Richardson and Richardson went on to score the third. But yeah, they're, everything that Postokoglu was doing at Celtic, you can see it in both these games. So whether the fullbacks inverting, uh, underlapping from those inverting positions, depending on uh, wide areas to progress the ball, the other interesting question is what will happen if Kane goes to Bayern Munich? Yeah. I think Richardson is a good fit to how uh, Postogoglu wants to play and what he wants from a striker. His movement inside the box is really good. And also his ability, his aerial ability to attack crosses, which is something that Kyogo Furuhachi did really well at Celtic with Postogoglu, would fit in well with what Postogoglu wants from his centre forward. And I guess with that, the final thing to, to say on it is that Spurs don't have any European football this coming season. So the speed of which their style might be implemented to Postacoglu's sort of needs and desires might be a little bit more fast-tracked because he'll have more time on, on the training field. So I think it'll be interesting just to see how that uh, that contrasts in the coming season. Yeah, that is... It's our first one, but I reckon that will end up being in my, in my top three of all the questions that we'll go through in this two-part episode. Tottenham under Postacoglu, and in particular... The ability of the current squad, the existing players to adapt to a new system and how quickly that will take and how definitively they do that is going to be absolutely fascinating. I think it's a, it's an interesting thing to discuss more generally, isn't it? I, I, I remember this time last year at championship level, the discussion about Burnley was this times 10 because they had gone from Sean Dyche to... Vincent Company, and of course they had dropped down a division and and the therefore the dynamics of the squad and, and the talent advantage versus disadvantage had a big factor but the general narrative was this is going to take loads of time because you can't go from long ball 4-4-2 to technical really attacking 4-3-3 possession based build up and they did in the space of a summer that you know he did achieve that so it will be really interesting to see what's possible for for Postacoglu and what may cause problems and let's talk about Brighton next second in the metric running order and uh, Liam Roberto De Zerbi has been pretty impressive without having had a preseason i suppose he did have the world cup break with some of his squad and Brighton's results post world cup break versus pre-World Cup break suggests that he had a pretty big impact when he could do some focused training. So I'm very excited, shock horror, about Brighton this season and what they might look like. What do you think is the biggest question there? 
Well, it's been one of the favourite things I've seen them do is become more of a long ball team. Not particularly frequently, um, but as a sort of a solution. Um, I think everyone knows by this point about their sort of approach to baiting a press, playing with that back four and a double pivot and having these patterns, um, which have for the most part worked quite effectively, often going from centre-back into a central midfielder, back out to the other centre-back, at times then wide or through midfield, into a striker as they drop deep. It's been fairly effective, but the problem is when you have a pattern-based approach as we've seen with other Italian managers that sort of work similarly is that teams can start to read it then they can start to have solutions against it and that can become more predictable. So uh, Manchester United... We a lot about the, that with Conte last season, did we not? We did indeed. So I guess it's actively finding solutions before it becomes a problem. And it showed in the FA Cup semi-final against Manchester United where they just sort of didn't engage the press too much at the time. They did occasionally, but often they just said, you know, we'll sit in a mid-block and, you know, you can try and find your solutions. And they just couldn't sort of play the way through. So what they've started to do is build short, um, but it's often come from Jason Steele, is basically just clipping a ball in behind to the left winger. Uh, he assisted Karim Matoma against Brentford in the in the Premier League home game in April and had the exact same assist for Simon Adingra mm. uh, in pre-season against Brentford. And I've broken this down on a piece, which is on site if people want to see it, as it's sort of easy, easier to, to visualise. But it's just the case that when they play with the number 10 and the striker drops deep to make the box midfield, that teams will leave a 2v2 uh, right at the, the top end of the pitch. And often that's the fullbacks up against Brighton's two wingers. And Karim Matoma has got pretty much anyone in the league, I think, in, in terms of a foot race for speed. It's a really good 1v1. Simon Adingra looks like he you can say the same thing for him uh, and Sonny March is also a very very good straight line runner so you're looking at these opportunities to not only exploit the press but it keeps the defence honest and I think it's a big part of getting these wingers into situations where they can be 1v1 because if you get into a mid block or a low block that you're facing against often they get doubled up and it's really then hard for them to you know be incisive and, and find these solutions so they did it really well against Chelsea and uh, Ahmed wrote about that earlier this season it was a key feature as well uh, in the one all draw against City it was the only time Jason Steele kicked the majority of his passes long mm. so I think it would be an important you know just sort of secondary asset to use particularly in Europe as well this season keeps a high line honest I think that It'll be an interesting addition. There's me while you're talking, Liam, Googling which goalkeeper's got the most assists in Premier League history. Apparently, Paul Robinson's got five to his name. David Seaman, four. Pepe Reina, four. So, uh, Brentford come next. Brentford and Brighton are uh, regularly discussed in the same breath and uh, the metric running order has spat them out together as well. Uh, Ahmed, season three, four Bs. Do we think this will be the most significant shift tactically in their time in the Premier League so far, of course, due to missing their talismanic striker, Ivan Tony. Yeah, it's 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 interesting what they'll do without Tony. I think we might see more of the 4-3-3 because the profiles of the attackers that they have, so whether it's uh, Wisa, Shada or Mbuemo are more suited to being wide players or playing like with Tony, with uh, someone who's really good in terms of aerial ability, in terms of winning flick-ons and things like that. So it's interesting to see what they'll do without Tony because Tony offered them a brilliant outlet, especially with David Raya, like pinging balls to him, either him winning the aerial duel or actually Brentford winning the second ball. And from there, they can actually attack. So with Tony out for till January, it's interesting what they'll do. And also with Raya being rumored to go to Arsenal, so his replacement, Mark Flecken from Freiburg, actually, I think it's a bit similar to Raya in terms of these long balls. So he actually had the second most launched balls in the Bundesliga last season, where long launched balls are uh, passes that were more than 40 yards. 40.8% of them were completed. That was the eighth highest percentage. Raya 
obviously was the most in the Premier League with 882 and his completion percentage was 39.3. It was only fourth about uh, it was only fourth after Jason Steele, Ederson and Allison. But we can see that the replacement in terms of Flecken can actually do this, but who is he going to play to with Tony out for half of the season? Mm. So that's the interesting bit. I was going to say, a, a goalkeeper's long pass completion percentage will be uh, heavily influenced by who the target is and how good they are at, at actually turning those passes into, um, well, controlled possession or, or at least um, control of the ball. Um, Raya, Tom, I'm interested to know what your take on Raya to Arsenal is because I, I've read a lot about it. Uh, a lot of people wondering if this is to truly challenge Ramsdale or if he's being signed as what I would consider to be a real premium number two. Yeah, 100%. I mean, if you're looking at the statistics, David Raya has been a better shot stopper than uh, Aaron Ramsdale over the last couple of seasons, particularly last season. I think he overperformed his expected goals conceded by 5.5. So that is a significant overperformance for, for a goalkeeper at this level. Um, but also, as uh, Ahmed alluded to, Raya mixes his game up quite a lot with his distribution. So we saw a lot of long passes last season. And that's something that while Ramsdale can do that he didn't do it very often and so it opens up a different kind of avenue of you know attack for Arsenal but yeah it kind of reminds me of when Pep Guardiola came into Man City actually and, and got rid of Joe Hart almost instantly mm. there was a lot of outrage really within you know the Man City fan base but also nationally because he, Joe Hart was the England number one but you're looking back on that now a couple of years down the line and that is kind of probably the thing that really allowed City to start playing the way that they have done over the last couple of years Edison is, is much more comfortable with his feet. So it's ruthless, but those kind of marginal gains that you get from being able to play in a different way um, over the course of the season is probably going to make a big difference. And there's a whole episode on the Athletic Football Podcast feed uh, from Tuesday with the new host Io Akinwalere and also Mark Carey on it as well. That really gets even deeper into the weeds uh, in terms of the potential signing of David Raya for Arsenal. But let's move on to Newcastle United. Liam, back in the Champions League for the first time in 20 years. I've got some unbelievable memories of watching those early 2000s, uh, late 90s Newcastle teams take part in European competition. Great to have them back at that level. Uh, just in terms of maintaining a top four position in Premier League level, it gets a lot harder now. It does. It does. Um, the chance winners have been quite interesting off off the back of that. Um, Sandro Tonali is a really nice central midfielder, played in sort of a double pivot in Milan's 4-2-3-1. Admitty, they were even more transitional than what Newcastle can be. Uh, and on top of that, bringing in Harvey Barnes, I think is a really exciting, um, really effective sort of left winger. We've spoken before on this pod and, and Michael Cox has written about um, you know, his one-twos, how he consistently gets in behind playing that combination and then likes to finish into the far corner. But I think it raises some interesting questions about how they go about organising their midfield. They've largely played a 4-3-3 with sort of a, a single pivot and two more athletics or three eights, if you like, in front of that. Obviously, Joe Linton sort of redefined himself in that position. They've got Matt Longstaff, Joe Willick, who can be sort of really... Uh, athletic dynamic beyond the ball box to box number eights and then it's the question of what you do with Bruno Guimaraes do you play him sort of deeper but then you might lose his creative outlet his passing he's a really good line breaker he was fantastic in that um sort of role of supplying Almiron last season and Newcastle's right side of that pitch was excellent with him Kieran Trippier sort of bombing on from right back and, and overlapping and then Almiron cutting inside so 
I think whether they stick with the 4-3-3, I'd be surprised if they do that all the way through, including in, in sort of European games. They're going to need some um, some balance, some alterations, because, of course, player fitness is, is a big deal. But also Barnes are going to need a pass on that left side to play those one-twos to get in behind. Um, the left side was definitely pretty a bit weaker going forward. They mm. obviously have Burnley's a bit more defensive, um, which is fine, I guess. If you're making chances, that's fine. You, you need a bit of balance. They had a very, very good defence overall last season. But... Yeah, I think they might go 4-2-3-1 sometimes this season. Maybe go Tenali and, and Gimarashi a bit deeper. Maybe play number 10. Of course, you've got Alexander Rizek who can play a number of roles in that forward line as well. Um, a bit more versatile than Callum Wilson. So they've got good questions to be asked, I think. It's not a case of like a bad way of how do you structure this. It's what solutions can you find uh, in order to sort of fulfil your domestic and European requirements. Yeah, I'm highly excited for Isak to come on once again um, for, for for the experience that he's had so far. We've already seen some very visible development, even just in his time in the Premier League, um, getting to grips with things and um, really terrifying defenders, I think, with a, a, a heady mix of skills. I'd also ask you, as you were there in person this summer watching it, what did you make of Anthony Gordon's stint as a false nine for England? Could that be something we see domestically? <sighs> I thought you'd never ask uh, Liam about my trip to Georgia. Uh, this is where the whole podcast pivots. It's more of a travel show now. Let me tell you about Kutaisi. Uh, no, uh, Anthony Gordon was, yeah, what a pleasure um, it was to watch Lee Carsley's England under-21 sides. I was at the first two games. Uh, a lot of people wondering why I wasn't out there for the knockouts because the last few tournaments, England haven't always made the knockouts. So might have arrived uh, not to see any English team playing. Um, but yeah, Gordon was was a, one of many fascinating, like individual tactical stories within Carsley's team. You know, his opening lineup was bamboozling on paper and exciting to watch um, and very, very interesting the way that he approached things and kind of throwing a lot of... Uh, what people would expect in terms of a player's natural position and where they should be operating on a pitch, kind of throwing a lot of that out the window. Garner as the as the right back, really, on paper at least, albeit not necessarily during build-up on the pitch. Uh, Max Ahrens mostly played uh, on the left side, where I've never seen him play for Norwich before. And then Gordon's the one, isn't he, really, um, playing through the middle as a number nine, even though there was Cameron Archer in the squad, who is a an absolute poacher-type nine. And, um, and player of the tournament. So it couldn't have gone any better. Um, I'd be interested to know, as you were possibly watching Liam through somewhat more sober eyes, exactly how you thought his role, why it suited him and the team and whether that means he could do the same at Premier League level. I'm always a little bit nervous because it strikes me that a, a European Championships at underage level to then make a leap to the Premier League and, and, and assume everything will be the same might be a little bit... Uh, yeah, difficult to translate. Yeah, it's a, it's a big gap to bridge, I think. It, it looked effective because he had the sort of license to rotate, often pulling out wide onto the left. I think you look at behind him, he had two of the best young number 10s in the world and Emil Smith-Rowe and Morgan Gibbs-White a lot of the time. Um, the whole plethora of quality England players there, that some of their incisive passing combinations were phenomenal. Of course, this is against other under-21s teams. So one, you've got the age factor um, and two, the fact that I guess comparatively other nations can't pile as much money into the youth setup as England. So England should be more overdeveloped at that level. But I was impressed as well that, you know, he looked like he had more to offer to his game there. He was scoring headed goals, scoring goals off of cutbacks. So we often, I think, can easily pigeonhole him as a, a direct straight line runner, purely playing in transition. But he's clearly got the the timing, the spatial awareness, which I guess are related to the fact, you know, he knows when to run and when to dribble, but in the box can then move quite well. He's an agile mover. Um, he's quite slick, I guess. He's quite lean. So presumably easy mm -hmm. to foul from defender's perspective or easy to get away from them. So... 
it's a useful tool to have. Jacob Whitehead, our Newcastle writer, wrote about that. And it's, yeah, it's more good effective solutions that, that Howe and Tindall can have next season. Considering they are playing in Europe and domestically, it's something that could be another weapon for them. I think it, it would be in such contrast to Callum Wilson because Callum Wilson is known to be the person who doesn't like to take too many touches. He is just there to be a penalty box presence. I think he has the few, if not him, then Erling Haaland, either one of them, the fewest touches per shot in the Premier League last season. So it's just a complete contrast. And when you need to maybe have a different profile of player, whether it's from the start or off the bench in Europe or domestically, then it could be a, another option. Yeah, certainly someone we'll be talking about, I reckon, uh, more and more this season. Anthony Gordon after a fantastic summer out in Georgia. Gordon. Shooting opportunity for him. Oh, the deflection takes it in. Hi, Ayoake Mulere here, host of the Athletic Football Podcast. Check out our latest episode as we dive into Manchester City's move for RB Leipzig's Josko Gvardiol. Debate the level of intelligence needed to play for Pep Guardiola, as well as what the move means for the rest of the Premier League. Available on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places. Just search The Athletic Football Podcast now. Uh, let's go to Burnley. I was going to say Premier League new boys, but it doesn't feel quite right. It's only 15 months since their last Premier League game or so. Uh, but they look very different. They feel very different. And they were a hell of a team to watch in the championship, Mark. Really excited about Vincent Company's Burnley. What do you think of the big question marks there at the moment tactically? Yeah, well, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on it from a from an EFL perspective. I think you mentioned it earlier in terms of the, the big questions being how is their style going to, to adapt so quickly from... Dice ball to uh, to Vincent Company's style, and I guess the second question now is how much that Vincent Company style now uh, translates to the Premier League. Um, obviously, it's been such a, a contrast in style, but they were emphatic in their in their title winning season, 101 points um, last season in the Championship. It was actually the sixth highest points tally in the history of the second tier. Mm. So, goes to show just how strong they were and how dominant they were. But just kind of bringing some numbers into how much they have changed. Their long ball percentage, their share of passes that were long ball for the final four Premier League seasons under um, Sean Dyche, it was in and around 21 to 22% of, of the passing share. It was only 10% last year. So it's been cut in half. Consequently, this makes sense. that Their passing accuracy uh, in the final four Premier League seasons, 69 to 72%, 85% last year. But I guess the, whatever numbers you use, it's it's quite clear that they like to circulate the ball far more and build up from the back. And I know that Tom's doing a, a preview of uh, Burnley ahead of the coming season. And we we spoke about an example from pre-season, I think it was against Benfica, where right from the back, they were baiting the press, the goalkeeper was involved and they worked it into a lucrative area from having that those short, sharp passes, didn't they? Yeah, 100%. And that was with uh, Murich in goal. They've kind of upgraded with James Trafford. I think he'll be more comfortable on the ball and be able to play those passes out from the back. Um, but yeah, it, it's going to be really interesting. We've, we kind of had a snapshot into what Burnley could be like playing against Premier League opposition last season when they went to Manchester City. They were beaten 6-0, but they did look brave on the ball and they did look like they were trying a lot of different build-up patterns, which is which is really encouraging. But yeah, in terms of a, a squad perspective, they've obviously lost a few players that they had on loan last season. So Ian Matson, I think, is going to be a really big miss at left-back. And at the moment, Charlie Taylor is the only real left-back in that squad. So I think that is a place that they're, they're be looking to upgrade there have been links to Quillinchy Hartman who plays uh, for Feyenoord who looks like he could be a good pickup 
Um, but yeah, they have built a squad. They have upgraded in, in, in certain areas. And I think it's going to be really exciting to see how, for example, their striker, the new striker, Amdouni, he is not a big, tall target man. He is not going to be going for all of those aerial duels. It'll be a very different kind of style of play. And whether it will translate, I think, yeah, is a big question. I think losing Nathan Teller as well, or not continuing to have Nathan Teller, of course, he was on loan last season, 17 goals, five assists, obviously returned to Southampton. I don't think there's too much opportunity for him to um, to go back. I think Southampton are going to keep him. But again, I'd be interested in your thoughts here, Ali, because we just spoke about the the goalkeeper build-up and the importance of, of them in in implementing the style that, uh, that a manager wants. And James Trafford was obviously playing in League One for, for Bolton last season. It's quite a big step up to then ask him to um, to do the same sort of style at Premier League level. He also had a fantastic campaign, obviously, in the, the European Championships this summer in the under-21s, was the hero in the, the final. Um, we know he's a very good player, but I don't know how much translation do you see there as well? I'd be really interested to see if he will start on opening day and go straight in as number one, partly because if companies' build-up patterns are intricate, if they need a fair amount of experience... Would it be fair to put Trafford straight in at Premier League level? Um, he is, the good news is he is someone, as far as I understand, with one of the strongest mentalities you'll, you'll basically find from a, uh, a young player of his age. And so I don't believe that he would get hugely phased by understandable mistakes or, or botched passes, which will happen. I think let's just say that now, that, that will happen to Burnley, that will happen to pretty much every team that's trying to, to play in that certain way and build up in that certain way using the goalkeeper. So Muric, you know, whether or not he's a better goalkeeper than Trafford, I think company got a lot from him last season and there were some hairy moments, but in the main, he was he was pretty strong. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if they take a bit of time to bed uh, Trafford in. I think it's really exciting um, that the winners of the championship have an excellent record in the Premier League in their first season. Over the last 10 years, only Norwich have gone back down. So it's eight out of 10 that have stayed up. Uh, Norwich having gone back down twice, having won the championship. Um, and uh, in the main, they they average, I think it's something like 48, 49 points. Uh, a few teams like Leeds and Wolves have uh, famously finished in the top half straight away. So um just on a sort of historical or recent historical Premier League context, I'm pitching Burnley fairly high. I'm I'm certainly not worried about them for relegation, certainly in comparison to the other two teams that have come up. So um, I think that there's a real tactical clarity there and a confidence. I think those two things really can um, carry a team a certain distance in the Premier League. And of course, over time, they will need to adapt. But uh, I think it's absolutely a, a brilliant way for them to approach playing. Uh, I sort of hope to see them take the approach that I always felt Eddie Howe took at Bournemouth, which was don't change your approach against the top teams because although you may lose 6-0 to City uh, on account of not being able to to take them on uh, on that playing field, I think Howe used to think, and I kind of buy into this, that it helps the clarity in the games against the 12 teams that you really need to beat. Um, and so that always makes for an entertaining uh, team to watch as well. Bournemouth, I think, finished 14th, conceding 70 goals one season. Um, so it, it's all exciting, basically. And, and anyone who's been living under a rock for 12 months and, and sees that Burnley have come back up and think that it's going to be anything like Burnley uh, from recent Premier League history, think again. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. 
Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. You're listening to the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast with Ali Maxwell. Arsenal. Ahmed, runners-up in the Premier League last season. Some eye-catching transfer business this summer. Uh, what's it going to look like under Arteta? Do you think more of the same or a bit of evolution? No, I think there will be an upgrade. So I want to add to something that Tom said earlier when we were speaking about uh, Ramsdale and Raya. It's about having more different profiles. So Raya is arguably way better long passer than Ramsdale. And that gives Arsenal an option if they get Raya. So when we see back their transfer window, you see Timber, Rice and Havertz. They are players that will give them more options. So the ball carrying of Rice and his defensive output, this is an option in terms of ball carrying from midfield that they didn't have a lot, like only maybe Odegaard to a lesser extent. And then you have Havertz up front who can play anywhere. So either as a number eight where Arsenal want them or actually up front, or maybe they play in a front two with the number 10 behind them and Odegaard. So I think... One of the issues Arsenal had last season is that everyone knew their plan A. It was so good, but the plan B was not as strong. So when we look at this season, they can have multiple ways of playing in possession. It's not only the 3-2-4-1 with Zinchenko going inside. And they're not 100% dependent on the wide rotations on the left from Zinchenko, Martinelli and previously Shaka. We can see that Arteta could spice it up with other formations, other movement. I think the different profiles that Arsenal got in the summer transfer window and in case they get Raya as well, will give Arsenal an edge that they didn't have last season. So for you, it's not as simple as something that I've seen a few times, which is Rice has been signed to play the party role from last season and Havertz is going to play the Xhaka role, that that left-sided number eight. For you, not as simple as that. No, I think that like in terms of Rice, I think the profile is actually different than Partey. Like in terms of the ball carrying that Rice provides, Partey doesn't provide. And actually, I wouldn't be surprised if Rice played next to Jorginho or next to Partey in one of the in one of the games. So the main thing is that Arsenal could be more unpredictable. And this is the edge we're talking about. Very interesting to see if they can 
go again, go one better uh, this season. Arteta's Arsenal have improved uh, very visibly year on year and, and, and further improvement really would make for a, a very, very exciting season for Arsenal fans and, and for us as well, for those who want a, a really exciting title race. Speaking of which, Mark, that takes us to Liverpool who have uh, a lot of improving to do from last season, uh, a poor campaign by Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool's standards, one in which we often spoke about a lack of connectivity, I think, possibly the key word in terms of Liverpool's very shaky looking defence and poor defensive record, not necessarily being able to be pinned on the defenders themselves, but actually having to look a little higher up the pitch and understanding that what had worked so well when everything was in sync um, during the good times had just come a little bit unstuck. So uh, how do they head into this campaign? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point. I think people are going to rightfully focus on the midfield for Liverpool and how much has changed, but I think that it is part of the, the wider system. But I think it's worth starting on the, the midfield. I think it has been one of the, the main talking points of the summer. There's been so much turnover with, within that area. So for different reasons, whether it's through signings or end of contracts, um, James Milner's left, Jordan Henderson, Fabinho, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, Naby Keita, all out the door. Um, Artur Mello, who's career at Liverpool was basically non-existent uh, left as well Fabio Carvalho you could include in that because he did play as a as a number eight at times he's gone on on loan to RB Leipzig but for all of those people that have left they've brought in Dominic Soboslai really good signing from RB Leipzig Alexis McAllister obviously from Brighton they are more attacking minded number eights arguably number tens at, at times and they still lack at the moment Liverpool a uh, a dynamic number six who's able to be destructive as well as be able to, to start off possession well. So there's key questions there sort of in possession. I think in pre-season, the most recent pre-season, it's been Curtis Jones who did very well going back to the European Championships as the sort of the starting um, number six and is very competent on the ball. But I don't think anyone would say that he is a destructive midfielder. I think he's more of a, um, more of a deep build-up player. And I think a lot of their Liverpool success, the things they did well uh, towards the end of last season was down to their change in structure and formation of having a, a three box three. So mm -hmm. having a four in midfield where Trent Alexander-Arnold comes inside and plays alongside the, the number six, which again in pre-season has been Curtis Jones. And that's worked to, to good effect in possession. I think Klopp's kind of said as much that the problem isn't in possession. Right. We've got the quality of players, especially at the top end, who have all been kind of firing on all cylinders in, in pre-season. But the speed of which they go into their defensive shape and their defensive structure is still quite lethargic at times. And they've, they've been caught out quite a lot um, by a, a ball over the top into Liverpool's right channel. The main thing that's plagued them all of last season still seems to be their Achilles heel. So they played against Bayern Munich very recently and just a simple ball over the top from Kim Min-Jae just found Gnabry in the channel between, uh, it was Joel Matip and Trent Alexander-Arnold, cut inside, goal. And it just seems to be the same issues as much as the same strengths with Liverpool. So I think to your point, I think it's really interesting of who Liverpool start with in the number nine role because Darwin Nunes is a very clinical, raw talent, etc. But contrasting that with Cody Gakpo, who kind of is a bit more akin to a, a Roberto Firmino, able to drop in, link the midfield and attack, but also a bit more competent in pressing from the front. And I, I basically think Klopp knows that because he said about Darwin Nunes in a, 
preseason friendly post-match press conference against uh, Leicester. He said, "They're all they're all our threat. They all are good footballers. The, the ticket into the team will be the readiness for defend. Because you never heard about a team being really successful with uh, sloppy defending. It will just not happen. So, and that's for Darwin the same like for all other strikers as well. Because I'm, I'm I know about the quality uh, what they have, and um, they need to do both." So he's basically, I think, nodding to the fact that he knows that Darwin's good on the ball, right. but he needs to do better off the Can ball. Can he get some minutes off the left, Darwin? I, I'm, I'm confused as to who the first choice left-sided forward would be out of um, Luis Diaz, Jota and, of course, Nunez. Yeah, they've just they've got an embarrassment of riches across the front three, really, and I think they all do offer different profiles, obviously. I think it depends on the opposition as to who would be the, the one to be selected there. I think... Young Ben Doak, Scottish um, winger, has, has done really well on the right side. Is a good understudy to to Salah. Of course, there's the uh, African Cup of Nations coming up soon as well, and they'll need to plug the gap there on the right side. So Diaz has, has come back pretty sharp. The key to that defensive sloppiness comes from the front, and if you don't cut it off at source, then as you say, the midfield and consequently the defensive line gets exposed. And it was the same problem last season. And it seems to still be kind of teething issues in pre-season because we know how much of a, a well-oiled machine it was with Mane, Firmino and Salah. And I still think there needs to be more done there to work it out. Yeah. And to add to everything Mark said, which is probably everything, is that Liverpool's counter-pressing in the last 10 games was incredible. And Klopp actually mentioned it more than once. I think this will be key coming into this season that in addition to the defensive transition into the defensive shape, how fast they win the ball back will be crucial into next season. Let's move on to Fulham. It strikes me that I've been a bit rude, actually, uh, having mentioned teams winning the championship and finishing comfortably in the Premier League. How about last season's Fulham side under Marco Silva picking up 52 points and finishing in the top half, having blitzed the championship? Liam, uh, we've, we've talked at length before about the sort of difficult second album being a, a, another challenge altogether. So I'm, I'm really interested to know what sort of shape that you think Fulham are in. Should we be considering them as a top half team or should we be a little more conservative? I suppose that's largely hinging on Alexander Mitrovic's future. Um, and to be fair, to some extent, Marcus Silva as well, um, which is obviously a lot of transfer speculation and things going on there. But I think there's sort of two parts to it for me. One is how they need to adapt more against the big teams. And that's a real sort of hyper critique of them because they were really really good last season I went to a couple of their games at, at the tail end of the season they beat Leeds ended up fairly comfortably that was without Mitro um, but then they went to Villa or I think maybe five or six games to go they had a shot on target inside about 30 seconds didn't have one again until about the 60th minute they were largely breathed in attack by that point they they were sort of fine Marcus was insistent they were not on the beach um, and they had a really really good season but of course they sort of tailed off a bit towards the end the Mitro suspension and everything that kicked in had a real impact on that but their record against the top teams wasn't great. Against the top eights, they did a double over Brighton, but they played 16, they won three and drew one. And that draw was, of course, Liverpool in the opening weekend where they were really, really good. Um, and there were just two clean sheets. Now that 4-2-3-1 that, you know, get it wide early, inverted wingers, overlapping fullbacks, lots of crosses, was really good against a lot of the bottom sides. They had a really good record. I know their XGA doesn't look pretty overall, but they just kind of got beaten well by the big teams and, and were the best of the rest, if you like. Um, but... I don't think that's an excuse going forward. That's something they should and probably will look to improve on. Um, I think Brentford are a great example of sort of having a different system against the, the big teams, often going to a back three. And then against some of the teams, they can have more possession, going a bit more 4-3-3, a bit more attacking. But the difference with that Mitro is, is quite stark. I mean, he scored six of their 13 goals that they did score against top eight teams. 
had a 6% high win rate in the games that he appeared. Um, when he did play, uh, they had an average of 2.2 more shots than opponents per game. That was minus 1.7 when he didn't play. But the points per game was really, really different. Uh, 1.5 versus 1.1, which if you extrapolate that over a full season, a full 38 games, which is, I know, quite projective, um, it's 57 points for a full Metro season. A no Metro season is 41.8, which is obviously an awful lot closer to relegation. And if anyone does find the perfect metric, please do let us know. <laughs> uh, that'd be great. Uh, let's talk about Manchester United now. Uh, Ahmed, please. Uh, fascinating, really, to see how they go. Second season under Eric Ten Hag. A couple of key additions through the door early. Mount and Onana, the goalkeeper. And also a bit of ground to make up, particularly when it comes to scoring goals, where you know very visibly they were uh, much worse than the other teams that finished in the top six last season. So uh, has that been fixed? In my opinion, this is a huge window for United. Like, I can't remember the last time they had a window this good. Maybe the, the Nani Hargreaves-Anderson one. But actually, the key thing is that they addressed all the problems they had. So that's the goalkeeper, central midfielder, someone to replace Eriksen, and a center forward up front. So in terms of Onana, I think Onana will help United a lot in terms of... Uh, playing with a higher line, whether on the ball or off the ball. He can sweep better than De Gea. He can claim crosses better than De Gea. And when we go to Mount, Mount is a better, younger version than Eriksen, who can actually offer United a lot out of possession in terms of pressing and counter-pressing, winning balls in midfield, and actually on the ball, dropping next to Casemiro to help with the build-up. So he didn't do that a lot at Chelsea because they had Jorginho and Kovacic, but actually he has the, the profile to do this job as well, in addition to attacking the spaces up front and creating chances. And then Hoyland, Mia Mark did uh, a piece on him last week. He can offer those runs in behind. He's a good fit for United in terms of attacking transitions. And everything that United did in the window is an upgrade. But I think the interesting question will be, will United improve their attacking set pieces? And if we look <laughs> at the set, set place per goal, they have 42.2. So a set place per goal is a better measurement because we adjust to the total number of set pieces each team has. So 42.2 was the second worst in the league after Brighton and especially corners. So I know that United scored six goals from corners in the Europa League and the FA Cup, but they only scored four in the Premier League. That was the fewest in the league tied with Brighton, Leicester and Forest. And when we look to the goals per 100 corners, it was actually only two. This was the second worst in the league after Brighton. So I think attacking set pieces is an area where United have to improve if they want to catch the likes of uh, Arsenal, Liverpool and City. I think it speaks to a, a wider point as well of Manchester United just converting chances at a rate they kind of should. And that was definitely the case last season in the numbers when you think about their expected goals or non-penalty expected goals against their um, their goal tally. They scored 11 goals fewer than they should have and only Everton and Chelsea had a, a worse underperformance. So you could kind of see that as a good thing, I suppose. If they do, if they perform at a similar level, then you'd imagine that would be closer to their actual goal tally. But it's quite clear that they just didn't necessarily have that clinical striker quite in the same way obviously relied quite a lot on Marcus Rashford and he's not an out and out centre forward we know his his strength in in transition and, and being sort of pacey in his sort of direct attack so I think it was in terms of bringing in Rasmus Hoyland it was quite sort of rudimentary to say but I think having someone anyone was better than having no one because they just didn't have that consistent out and out number nine so I think he'll he'll add a lot in in transition I think United should and will adapt to his style of play as well. But just having someone who is a bit more of a penalty box threat as well will allow them to be stronger in set pieces, but stronger in converting chances more generally because they definitely underperformed last season. 
I wonder, just going back to the set pieces, Ahmed, I mean, because obviously Mason Mount's come in now. Um, if you're looking at the data, only four players have um, more than Mount's 11 assists from set pieces across the last five Premier League seasons. So he's clearly got a good delivery, kind of like a flat delivery to the near post, which a defender can flick on. Do you think that could improve their, their output on set pieces or is it more a kind of routine kind of variation that they need? It could slightly, but when you look last season, they had Bruno, Eriksen and Shaw, who are also decent <laughs> set-piece takers. So I think it's more about finding better routines when the ball is played directly into the box. So I think from October last season till the end of the season, the short corner routines where they try to find the player outside of the box improved, but the ones where they play the ball into the box directly, it was pretty average when compared to the better set-piece teams like, for example, Tottenham last season, Brentford, Arsenal or Liverpool. Ahmed, I'd like to ask you about Luton Town now. Their first season in the Premier League and they're going to be a, a fantastic addition to the division. I've absolutely no doubt about that. And tactically, it, it's always an interesting one for promoted sides. Uh, do you stick with what's uh, given you success? Do you need to make any changes? Uh, where are you at with, with Luton tactically ahead of this season? What can listeners expect from the Hatters? Pretty much a back three and playing like a 3 one 4 two, uh, with three in midfield and two up front in uh, Carlton Morris and Ilya Adebayo. And mainly uh, Morris and Adebayo, when Luton have the ball, they try to move to the half spaces or the channels to link up with the play. Or actually, Luton can go direct into them, whether from the keeper. I know it was Ethan Horvath, but he left now and went back to Forest. They've been linked to uh, Blackburn's goalkeeper. And a key thing of Luton's play is not only the long balls from the goalkeeper, it was actually from the back three. So whether it was uh, Osho or it was uh, Tom Lockyer or Bell, mainly they played long balls into the channels, into one of the centre forwards, so uh, Morris or Adebayo, and then they could actually win the second balls. I think this is a key part of uh, Luton's game on the ball. But the challenge will be that in the Premier League, the centre-backs will be pressed by higher quality pressing team. So they won't have that much time or the same time to, to actually play those long balls into the centre-forwards in the channels. Mm. Well, yeah, and, and also at the other end of the pitch, as you say, that they got so much out of those long passes into the front two. Uh, they also got so much out of the energy of their number eights in particular in terms of getting on second balls and, uh, and, and getting position, uh, possession higher up the pitch and playing from there. Um, but again, at Premier League level, of course, being as it is the, you know, the strongest league in the world, all of the centre-backs now are going to be much more comfortable handling the physicality of Adebayo and Morris. They're going to be much more comfortable um, playing passes through the press or even carrying it past players. Uh, it is going to be a, a, a fabulous test for this team who, lest we forget, have won three promotions in something like eight seasons. So um, certainly a deserved spot at this level and it's going to be great to see them. Tom, a couple of interesting uh, additions, a window that... Uh, I think, based on my understanding of, of the club and and their composure in their decision-making right from the top, is, is not that they're seeing this as a shot to nothing and they have to throw absolutely everything at it in order to desperately cling on to Premier League status. It's actually, you know what, we weren't actually at the top of the food chain in the championship either, but we can probably use this scenario to become that if we're ever to drop out of the Premier League. And some of the players they've signed have proven themselves at championship level and if they do find themselves back there they can be confident that they'll have among the best players in certain positions yeah I think Marvellous Nakamba is a very good demonstration of that he played very well for Luton last season and they've gone in and signed him on a permanent deal so that's a really good addition to the, the centre of their midfield 
I'm quite excited about uh, Ryan Giles, actually, who they signed from Wolves. Um, because he was really impressive on loan for Middlesbrough last season. Uh, the most assists in the championship with 11. And he actually attempted 68 more crosses than any other player in England's top four league. So he's very relentless when it comes to swinging the ball in with, with a very talented left foot. Um, and he actually got an assist against Wolves in pre-season. Um, I think that was yesterday or the day before with a really, really nice ball in. It was ruled out for offside, but that kind of shows the outlet that Luton might have. And, you know, we were talking about not being able to get into Adebayo or Morris as much. Maybe they'll they'll tilt to the left and, and look to find Ryan Giles a bit more. I think they, they certainly will. They, they kind of already did that because the, the other left wing back option, um, Alfie Doughty, he is of a similar profile, I would say, very much attack-minded, very quick and, uh, and and sort of high volume in terms of crossing. Uh, certainly on the right side, uh, they probably don't have quite the same options. So I do think they will skew left quite a lot in their attack. And uh, again, that will, if it's, if it's not something that ends up being a hugely valuable avenue for them, then I, I would be concerned about the, the sort of route to goal, if you like. But I like the addition of, of Tahith Chong as well. And Manchester United fans will remember him from having played in their um, academy team and their under-23s. And he fits the bill for a Luton Town player in that he has incredible energy and he's very tenacious, um, pressing, proved himself at, at Birmingham City on that front. And I think has uh, a high a higher technical ceiling, shall we say, than a lot of um, Luton's current squad. So um, I, I've really enjoyed watching them add to their squad, but I do think that they are in the main, you know, sticking with their guns and what's worked for them. And I, I definitely respect that. And I'm, I cannot wait to see how it plays out at Premier League level. So what a nice spread of teams we've had in part one of, of this episode. We've talked about uh, Arsenal. We've talked about Manchester United. We've also talked about Luton and Burnley who've come up from the championship. So I uh, hope you're enjoying this. Uh, this is the end of, of part one uh, of our pre-season coverage of the Premier League on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. Ten more teams to come in a metric-based order. Any guesses before part two? I'll withhold until part two, I think. My lips are sealed. Yeah, I was kind of thrown by some of the teams that followed other teams <laughs> as we were going through. So, yeah, I'm not really sure at this point. Good. Good. I'm doing my job then. Uh, thanks very much for listening to this. Please do make sure that you sign up to The Athletic uh, and make sure that you're reading everything that these guys are putting out there and all of their colleagues as well. Uh, subscribe to this podcast feed and, and do check out The Athletic's Stable of Football podcast. So much good stuff. We've got you covered. Uh, so do uh, join us for part two of this episode of The Athletic Football Tactics podcast. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. 
Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. 